Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Morgan, and you are listening to Episode 7 of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds, including mental health, trauma, and addiction. I am not a counselor, and this podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy, more like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with both adults and children, I share my lived experience with mental illness, trauma, and addiction in order to connect with clients and help them see that they are not alone, helping them to share their own recovery stories, set goals, build hope, and live more self-directed, purpose-filled lives. And that is the spirit I'm bringing to this podcast show. The website for SoundMind is soundmindpodcast.com. There you will find social networks, learn more about guests, and where you can leave a comment or send me an email. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you have a reaction to an episode. Now, on to today's guest. Monica Forbes is a person in long-term recovery, but still won't give up her coffee. Some people suggest that it might be her actual blood type. Living with co-occurring mental health and opioid use disorders and being a three-time accidental overdose survivor led to the low point in Monica's recovery of a near suicide and a five-year prison stay. It was in prison that she finally started to get the help she needed to tackle her addiction and begin to repair her relationships. These experiences helped her develop a life purpose and passion for the field of peer-based recovery support services. She is now an inspiration to many, including myself. Monica currently works as CEO of Recovery United, a nonprofit that owns and operates seven recovery community organizations across Idaho. She is both nationally and state certified as a recovery coach and serves her community by volunteering on several boards and committees. And with that, let's meet Monica. You are celebrating 16 years of sobriety on August 24th, which is a huge achievement. And I was just hoping um, that in order for us to better understand the path of recovery, if we could start at the beginning of your story and talk about your childhood a little and maybe some of the things that might have contributed to your um, use of opioids. Sure, absolutely. Um, My childhood. Um, I had... A relatively normal childhood, I think, when I talk with other people now and, and look back, but I did have some trauma that, that happened um, early on um, where I was separated from, from one of my parents mm-hmm. at the age of two and a half. And it was one of those things that I think, in retrospect, really affected my self-esteem, my self-image, and kind of, um, I was raised in a, in, by my grandmother, but where, where there was this generational gap Mm -hmm. and, um, it it wasn't a bad childhood. You know, I was very loved. I was very well taken care of. I just, I don't know. Um, I always felt like there was something wrong with me, you know, um, I can really relate to that. I had a similar thing happen. Yeah, um, my well, my mom raised me with my stepdad, and and they were both great parents. But my biological dad was never around, and so I always, even though I had you know a relatively good childhood, um, I always had that empty feeling like, what's wrong with me? Why didn't he want me? Why didn't he, um, you know, step up and be part of my life? And all that questioning all the time about my my worth constantly. I don't know if you had that too, but constantly questioning how much I was worth. Absolutely. And it, it affects your relationship, how you um, bond with the alternate parental figure in your life, how you make friends, who you make friends with, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. um, it sort of 
did you feel like it just sort of made you feel like an outsider? Yeah, it, did, it didn't help that I was dark skinned and my sisters, um, well, they're my, technically my half sisters, but my sisters were blue eyes and blonde hair and light skinned and I'm, you know, I look, I'm mm. American. So then we'd go to the grocery store and people would ask if I was the babysitter. So it was very noticeable. I was oh. outside the family, but my parents, you know, went out of their way not to make me feel that way. And I never even called my stepdad, stepdad, like even saying it now makes me feel weird. Um, cause he was my dad. He, he raised me since mm-hmm. I was two. But yeah, being apart from my family, both in how I look and, and having a dad that wasn't around was definitely something that weighed, weighed on me heavily. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can say the same thing with my situation. It wasn't that I was made to feel different or that um, less than I was a part of the family. You know, um, I didn't. It wasn't anything anyone did. You know, I think it was just the circumstances. Mm hmm. And I don't know how else to describe that. But that feeling started very, very early in my life. And it was, it was painful. And it was something that um, I was always trying to outrun that I didn't understand, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on in my childhood, um, I guess if you consider 12 years old, a child, like it really is. Yeah. It, you're just almost a teenager, right? Yeah. Um, I had another traumatic event. Um, and um, I was sexually assaulted mm. and it was by a um, step family member kind of a situation. And the way that was handled was, was something that was very common during those days without telling you my age or dating myself. <laughs> um, I, I could just tell you back then um, it was shameful and it was something that we don't want anyone to find out, you know, and I remember people that I thought should be protecting me and standing up for me were kind of like, Oh, we don't want to say anything. We don't want anyone to know. We don't want to rock the boat. And that further increased that feeling of I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not, um, I don't know, like this is my fault. And, and I, I, I know that a lot of people who are victims, we, we, I don't know why we blame ourselves. But it, the way I was treated and the way that people reacted around me really reinforced that belief. And so now I'm going into my teen years and my young adult years with a really bad self-image, a lot of baggage, a lot of pain. Yeah. Well, and it kind of turned, I got sexually assaulted about the same age, a little bit older than that and didn't tell anybody for just, I just didn't want it to disrupt my family. I felt like we had enough stress going on without me having this thing. So I kind of made an executive decision Mm -hmm. not to say anything, but for me, it definitely, it it made me feel ashamed Mm -hmm. and like disgusting, but then it also turned on my sexuality super early, um, which was a problem all throughout my, and it does do that. Yeah. 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 It does. You're all of a sudden you're like, have all these adult emotions and feelings and you're still playing with, you know, Barbies. (laughs) So it's true. Do you think that it sort of gave you a feeling of like, Hey, if if anything like this happens again, I want to have control over it. Oh, for sure. You know, for sure. I didn't want to be inexperienced. I wanted to be, you know, walking into the situation. Like I knew what I was doing and, and, and it was no big deal. Um, even though it was a big deal. I mean, I lost my virginity at 15. 
which I really regret because it's so, I mean, now I have a 16 year old daughter and when she was 15, I can't, I can't imagine if she would have lost her virginity. It was so young. Um, but but mm-hmm. you know, thankfully she hasn't, she hasn't had any of those experiences um, like I had as, when I was younger, but it's still like, I, I think I was an adult after that right away. I was already pretty much an adult because I practically raised my sisters. Both of my parents worked all the time. So I was the one that was home cooking and cleaning and mm-hmm. going to parent teacher conferences and all that stuff. Um, and my parents did when they could, but you know, we were, you know, wow. poor. yeah, we were poor. So we had, uh, everybody stepped in to do something when they could. So all of that stuff contributed to the fact where by the time I was 15, I right. thought I was ready for everything. <laughs> I'm an adult. Look at me. <laughs> I know. Look at me. I just went to a parent teacher conference. Like I know what's up. <laughs> hmm. Oh, if we could go back, Shannon. <laughs> I know. I know. I think about. I think about that a lot. When I had a daughter, that's all I could think about is I. I can't let her have those experiences. Like I'll do anything I can to protect her from those experiences. But the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is, someone's trauma is their trauma. So she's had trauma. It might not have been as severe as mine was, but it, you know, according to her, because it's her trauma, it's pretty severe. If that makes sense, because that's all she knows is her reality. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And trauma, we've learned, is just not necessarily what happens to us, but how we react to it, uh-huh. how it affects us. And, and what, it, like you're saying, what's one person's trauma is not necessarily another person's. Um, and there's no predicting how that's going to be mm-hmm. or how we're going to react when things happen. Um, I think the only thing we can do is put with our kids is, is do as many protective factors as possible. Um, give them coping skills, help them be as resilient as possible, no matter what the trauma is, have the tools to recuperate from it. Yeah. Normalize therapy and normalize talking about it. Yes. No more secrets, no more shame, no more hiding things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think in recovery, if I've learned anything, it's that, there's an axiom that's very common in the program called, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets, Mm -hmm. but that is a powerful statement. And I have found that to be very true because once when we're shoving them down there, we're hiding them, we're hoping nobody finds out about them. They grow, they, they have power over us and you bring those things out into the light. They wither up and die, go away and they quit having power over you. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is to talk about it, to um, to get it out with trusted people, and 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 process it, and don't let it have that power over you anymore. Yeah, because you don't even understand the power that it has. I mean, I when I was, uh, I would say I won't say promiscuous because that just seems like a like a a religious shaming word, but I was definitely hypersexually active and had a lot of sex in my lifetime. And I think a lot of that is because of the trauma from childhood that I didn't, I didn't understand how it was informing my behaviors. And I don't want to like make it sound like sex is a bad thing or someone who has a lot of sex is bad, but I can say that some of it that I did was unhealthy. And that's the part that's bad is that it was unhealthy for me. You know, there were other sexual encounters I had that were very healthy and very awesome, but some of them were really pushing the edge. Um, and I, I wish I would have gotten to therapy a lot earlier in my mm-hmm. life than I did. Cause I think I would have been able to make better choices about those things. Oh, I completely relate to that. It wasn't until my thirties <laughs> that I, 
I started even trying to engage in therapy and counseling and benefit from that. Um, it's, it, I think you made a good point. It's about what's healthy about it. Is it healthy sexual behavior? Are these healthy relationships? Um, I, I don't think mine were. I um, had these very weird um, expectations of, of every relationship. You know, like, oh, this guy I'm going to meet at the bar this weekend, you know, he could be the one, (laughs) Um, you know, we're going to go live that happily ever after fairy tale thing, which um, that is just um, (laughs) not exactly how it goes. I wish some of the fairy tales that we were raised with actually went into how do you have a healthy relationship? Not how do you plan your wedding? What are the colors? What's the dress? What does the cake look like? You know, it seems yeah. like that was a lot of our, our grooming for marriage, if you will. It was about the colors and the flowers and who's going to be your bridesmaid. And it was not, I don't remember anyone sitting down and going, these are healthy relationship behaviors. This is what you're looking for in a partner, you know, um, the one you're going to ride off into the sunset with. Yeah. This <laughs> is how was, you recognize narcissism. Stay away from that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and just because he understands you and is as sick and twisted as you, doesn't mean that you, the two of you together are going to be better. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that sure cost me quite a few um, relationships. And I, I'm not going to say that they were bad people. They were bad men. But I certainly was, I didn't know what my standards were. So mm-hmm. I didn't really have any. My heels were higher than my standards. <laughs> and uh, I, I seemed to keep going um, into the same relationship and it would fail. And I'm getting into the relationship again. And it's almost like it's the same person, but he has a different name and a different face. Yeah. You know, but it's the same type of person. And now looking back, I can realize a lot of that. First, I thought my picker router was broken, mm-hmm. but I was broken. Mm-hmm. I was broken too. I, um, I wasn't healthy. Um, I, it was, I didn't feel good about myself. And I felt like, well, if this man loves me and accepts me and thinks I'm very cool, then maybe I'm okay. And I was trying to get that self-acceptance that I needed to give myself. I was trying to get it from relationships Mm -hmm. and it did not work out over and over. (laughs) Yeah. I did the same thing, almost the exact same relationship. It just kept having, having the same, the same patterns falling into place almost at the same time, even in terms of like six months, this would happen Mm -hmm. a year, this would happen. And and, and just not learning from it. And then eventually I ended up getting assaulted. And, and then I decided, okay, I'm done with this. <laughs> I'm done with this. I'm going to stop dating. Until oh, I figure wow. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I was someone I was only dating two months, uh, beat me up really bad, dislocated my arm and bit me on my shoulder and, you know, bruised up my face really bad. And then I took him to court and I lost because the jury actually believed I could bite my own shoulder. I mean, if you try to actually do it right now, it's hard. It's impossible. You can't. But uh, yeah, so I lost and that was almost more painful than the actual assault, if I'm honest, is going to court and losing. That was really hard. Um, but yeah, that was three years ago and I haven't dated since of then. Course. I'm like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> and maybe that's not a bad idea, you know, just, and I'm not saying that you did any, 
Oh, you I know. did not ask for that. You did. You know what I mean? You know, yeah, I just but how I is it that couple. we're attracting people like that? Yeah, exactly. And they were getting worse. It wasn't getting better. It was like progressively getting worse. The kind of guy just kept getting, I will say moldier and moldier because I can't think of what other word to use, but uh, <laughs> until, until it was so good disgusting that I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't deny that I was picking a bad person. And, and before I could, I could just say, oh, well, I made, you know, a bad choice and that's why this happened. But now like it was obviously a bad person and I picked him anyway. And that's when I was like, okay, like right. to evaluate why this is happening and why these patterns keep oh, coming again and again in my life. And I, my kids are, my son is 18 and my daughter's 16. So this is three years ago. So they, I didn't want to spend three years trying to figure it out dating people. I wanted to wait till they were grown up. So I just stopped dating. Is it where does it feel good? Is it? Oh yeah, it feels great. I don't really, re- I don't regret that. I regret it at all. Uh, it's been a good choice for me. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of other things that I've been working on in the meantime um, that have been awesome. And so I've just been doing mm-hmm. all the self discovery and just completely focused on myself. And when you take all the energy that you put in dating out and you and you can put it into yourself, it's pretty amazing what can happen. Um, but now I just do it because I'm waiting for my daughter to get older. I just don't want to mess with it right now. I'll start dating again when mm-hmm. she's <laughs> when she's 18. I don't know. Maybe I'll start dating in six months. Who knows? I'll, I'll figure it out as I go. And when it starts feeling that it's time to move on, I'll move on. But right now I'm getting so many, I started this podcast. I'm doing all this mm-hmm. cool stuff. And so I'm going to keep on this course until I really miss it. Mm-hmm. I think that's smart. I saw somebody was um, talking once um, on an interview and he was like, you know, I think, I date myself. Like, I don't need other people. He goes, I take myself to dinner. I take myself shopping. I spend time with myself. Like I I'm the one <laughs> I do that. Too. And, and I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go see movies by myself. You know, um, all those things. Back when yeah. You and it, it, it feels uncomfortable and weird at first, but then it gets really, if we can treat ourselves, Shannon, the way that, that we expect other people to treat us, mm-hmm. that's going to have to raise our standards, right? Oh yeah, I mean, for sure. You know, like if you can treat me as well as I treat me, then we can talk. <laughs> and so if I, I don't know if I shared this with you before, but I had an amazing counselor that, um, in my recovery, um, that later on in life, uh, told, sent me home with some homework. And as we were talking, I was processing things that were going on with my family, um, transitioning, um, back into the community. And I, I didn't believe her, but she was like, Monica, you're going to date. I was like, no, I'm not. That is not my priority. I'm not dating. And she says, no, no, you're young. You're going to date. And she goes, just, just humor me. If you could build the perfect gentleman, the perfect partner in your life, what do they look like? what are, what are their qualities? What is their personality? What are their values? Just whatever you think of. And why don't you make a list and bring that in next week? And I was like, okay, so I'm going to design this perfect man. And, um, I'll never find him because there's nobody who, um, has an Australian accent, had green eyes, plays the guitar in the church band, you know, is kind to people, is fiscally responsible, is funny, has this, you know, a corny sense of humor like I do, whatever it was, right? I made this really long list though of this impossible partner. And I was very proud of myself. (laughs) I take it back in the next week to counseling and she goes, okay, 
Now, which one, how many of those attributes that you listed, how many of those are non-negotiable? So no matter what, if he doesn't have these non-negotiable things, you're not going to be in a relationship with him. And I was like, hmm, okay. Well, he needs to be in recovery. He does need to be kind. You know, he needs to be honest, um, trustworthy, uh, fiscally responsible. That doesn't mean rich. You know what I mean, Shannon? Yeah, managing money. It means money that they, 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 yeah, they can live within their means, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I, I went through the things that, okay, no matter what, if they're not honest, I don't want to be in a relationship with them. If I can't trust them, I don't want to be in a relationship with them. Um, it's okay if he doesn't have an Australian accent <laughs> and I guess it's okay if he doesn't have green eyes, you know, things, but those, those personality traits and, and character traits were, were ones like, no matter what, this is my standard. And I took the list back into her the next week. And then she turns to me and she goes, those are really good. She goes, now of those ones that you listed that are absolutely important, how many of those are you? And I was like, oh, but she had a a very good point. Um, Yeah. Being a good partner, personally cultivating and, and growing those own traits in myself would not only make me a better person and make me a person I would like, but also changes who we attract, you know, um, and it's important. And it was probably the best relationship advice I think I've gotten in my entire life. Yeah. It's so funny because I almost um, shared that story, but you were the one that shared the story in the first place with me. That's so funny. But I, I agree. That's, oh. a, that's, that's something I did. I, as I did, I wrote down, I was filling out a dating profile and I was filling out all the stuff I wanted and I looked at it and I'm like, I don't even do half this stuff. Like, how do I expect someone else to do this stuff if I don't do this stuff? Mm-hmm. It's pretty, it's pretty profound when it hits you like, Hey, I got to bring my A game too and not expect that there's going to be any kind of partner that's going to come into my life and make it all better. It's true. Especially when you don't understand what's wrong in the first finally, That's the thing. And we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can forgive ourselves for that. But at the end of the day, um, even if Mr. Perfect walked in, would would I be able to love him the way he deserves to be loved? A, and then B, am I going to accept his love? Because I think this is what happened, Shannon. I think that when we don't, we are not healthy ourselves. When we do not have a good self image and a high enough level of self esteem, I think even if a really great partner comes into our life and offers us love, we're like okay, but what's wrong with you? Why do you love me? And that should never be a question. Of course they love you <laughs> and you yeah. deserve to be loved. But if you are carrying all of those traumas and all of those broken hearts and all of those pains and hurts around with you still, and you don't know that you're worthy of being loved, even if the best person in the whole world walks into your life and offers you that unconditional love and acceptance, you don't know what to do with it. Yeah, very true. Even when you're not looking, even with the, the casual relationships, because um, I was 
primarily what I was after for a while is just casual relationships. Even with, even with those, uh, you know, I'd have to drink, I'd have to smoke pot, I'd have to like get myself completely faded so that I could engage in those relationships. And there's nothing that the men were doing that was making me do that. They weren't pushing drugs on me or anything like that, but I needed to feel numb so that I could, I could live so I could just get up in the morning and get through the day and get through the evening. And sex was just one more other drug that I could have intimacy and sex, the adventure Mm -hmm. of finding a partner and the first time and all of that. It was a drug. It was like an addiction. Well, yeah, sex addiction is a thing. (laughs) So I guess I can say that. Um, But yeah, it it was all of that stuff just kept compiling and kept compiling. And and it it was a while before I just dawned on me like, okay, maybe there is something wrong with me. Like, because I would say, oh, there's nothing wrong. This is perfectly normal behavior. And and for many people who are healthy that can can do that and it's healthy. But for for me, it wasn't healthy at all. What I was doing wasn't healthy. And understanding mm-hmm. that there was something going on inside of me that was causing me to need to be numb to everything and to need to use drugs and alcohol to insects to escape. Um, that was a big revelation. Oh, I bet. It's actually, we have hormones when we have a crush on someone or we're in falling in love, whatever you want to call that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's literally hormones your body makes that are like natural antidepressants. It's, that's why you um, you lose your appetite. You have a hard time sleeping. You um, all of that stuff. Like it, it, I can see how that could definitely be addicting. How and why that is attractive mm-hmm. to be in because it feels better. Um, it make it literally. It's like one of your body's natural antidepressants. And it's a good one. It works really well. <laughs> Until it doesn't. <laughs> Until it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> so what, what, um, what was yeah. your, um, how did your, uh, addiction start? Well, I ended up getting married really early. Um, not because I was pregnant or anything. I just was raised to believe that getting married and having babies was the end all be all of existence. So at 16, when this really cute Navy boy on a motorcycle asked me to marry him, I said, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, he was in the Navy. Uh, I, we got married and we moved down to California and, um, I've never drank in my life. No, don't drink, don't smoke. I was raised in a very strict religious um, home. So I was now I speaking like to what you were saying earlier about at 16. Well, I'm an adult now. I'm actually an emancipated minor because I'm married <laughs> and um, I'm all grown up and I can do what I want. And um, I started drinking. and. You know, at first it was just on the weekends and not a big thing, except um, it was not something he thought he had married this nice little, you know, Adventist girl that played piano every weekend at church and ended up with this party girl that was, you know, just kind of a little bit um, out of control. And um, to make matters worse, not only were we young and on a Navy base, and if you want to party, a Navy base is a pretty good place to do that. Um, But he was deployed almost half the time. So we'd 
we're struggling. We're trying to be married, trying to adult at 16 and 19 years old. And then half of the year he's out of the country on deployment. And so I have to manage everything on my own. And then, you know, six, nine months later, he's back. And it's like, oh, okay, let's, let's be a married couple again and figure this out. It's like getting to know each other all over again, two, three deployments. And a couple of years later, um, I got pregnant with our daughter and we moved to this tiny little Island out in the middle of the Aleutians in Alaska. And, and we had our first daughter and now we're stuck together. And it's not like there's a lot you can do on this tiny little Island that we lived on. It was like two by 10 miles. And so everybody drank, everybody, you know, partied. And, um, I, I just ran right into that. And that just started causing a lot of problems in our marriage and our relationship. You know, my partying, now we have a child. Um, we're like stuck together. Like there's, there's nowhere to get away from each other kind of a thing. So we ended up getting divorced. And what does a young 21 year old do when they're getting divorced? They party, I guess. I, that's what this one did. Yeah. And, and so, and it was a weekend thing, but what it was, and even back then, it wasn't like it was, um, I was drinking every day, you know, maintenance drinking or anything like that. But what it did do is it started becoming my social lubricant so that my judgment was completely compromised in, in dating and relationships and, and casual sex and all of that. But it also what became one of my coping skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that feeling of I'm not stressed out. I'm not worried about everything right now. I don't have the world on my shoulders. I, I have some peace. So it became a coping skill for me. And I'd go through periods where I was really, you know, party, 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 and then I'd clean up and then I'd party, party, party. And then I would clean up and that continued for a while. But my opiate addiction probably, um, it was about 10 years later, I actually um, developed a rare neuropathy that was really painful. And that's when they started giving me opiates. And I still remember taking them, you know, that first time and going, oh, my gosh, I really like the way that makes me feel. Again, with the numbing, mm-hmm. you know, I liked the numb. I didn't feel everything. I didn't feel all of my shame. I didn't feel all of my anxiety. I didn't feel my depression. It just, it it numbed me, even if it was just for two or three hours. So it wasn't very long before I started abusing them and then doctor shopping around. And um, I had a legitimate medical reason to be taking them and they were happy to give them to me. Um, But Pretty soon I'm taking more than I'm supposed to. And I've been taking them for a year or two years and I've built up a tolerance to them. So not only am I not getting as high from them, but I'm also, they're not having that same numbing effect on me. Yeah. And so they kept upping the dose, upping the dose. And eventually um, I was going to a pain clinic um, for methadone. And back then... In 2000, 2001, actually, it probably started in 1999, but they would um, send you home with a 30 day supply. And I was supposed to take two or three a day. And it, w- it got up to the point where I was taking six or eight at a time. And um, one day, um, 
I took eight, forgot I had taken eight and took eight more. And about an hour later, my then husband came home from work and um, he couldn't wake me up. He said I was barely breathing. I was kind of um, started that kind of gurgling noise as your throat and your respiratory tract is is relaxing, which Mm -hmm. is what the opiates are doing when you're having an overdose. You kind of make this sort of a, a gurgling snoring sound. And he said I was making that. He knew I was taking more than I was supposed to. He didn't want me to get in trouble with the pain clinic. So he didn't immediately call 911. But this man who did not even believe in God or wasn't really sure how he felt about God, certainly wasn't a religious man, um, turned on the cold shower, sat down on the floor of the shower, held me in his arms like a baby. And what I woke up to was him just rocking back and forth. We're both under this cold spray of water. And he's going, please, God, don't let her die. Please, God, don't let her die. Oh, you know, and I opened my eyes and I kind of was revived. And um, he, uh, I don't know, uh, you would think that that should scare somebody, right, Shannon? Yeah. <laughs> you should go, scary. wow, that was scary. That was kind of close. I should stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, it didn't. And um, I overdosed two more times. Um, The next time I woke up in the ER, they had just given me a shot of Narcan. And that was not fun. I can tell you that. (laughs) Um, What Narcan does is block, it knocks all the opiates off of the opiate receptors and um, kicks it out so they can't adhere to it. So you are instantly in acute withdrawals. Oh, wow. Your stomach hurts, you're sweating. Every muscle and nerve in your body is screaming um, for that narcotic to come back. Um, Your hair hurts. I swear, Shannon, I don't know how your hair hurts. I know it doesn't have nerves, but I'm telling you, my hair hurt. And I just couldn't wait to get out of that emergency room and go get, I, I knew I needed more drugs. I need to get some more drug in my system here. It was, it was not fun. So three times I accidentally overdosed and I still continued, um, taking all of the prescriptions, abusing all of the prescriptions that I was on until I got into trouble with the law. Mm -hmm. Um, because, um, when you're buying your pills because you've run out 10 days into the month and they're not going to refill them. And you've doctor shopped everywhere you can go. You've made up every excuse you can possibly make up on like, oh, they fell down the sink or oops, I left them in the hotel or oh, gosh, somebody stole my purse. I mean, I, I don't know. I came up with every excuse I could come up with and the doctors are just not going to give them to me anymore. So I start buying them from my neighbors. And my first drug dealer was one of my daughter's friends, moms who lived in our nice suburban neighborhood and um she would sell some to me but when you're paying twenty dollars a pill and you're taking handfuls of them at a time that adds up really fast and i ended up committing some financial crimes um because i've already depleted our savings Mm -hmm. um i'm we're like a couple of times we almost lost our house because i didn't make the mortgage payment i mean i destroyed our finances i destroyed a lot of I, all the relationships. I destroyed a lot of things just trying to not be sick to get the drugs that, that my brain was telling me that I needed. 
but, um, so I had, um, some detectives come over and talk to me about one of the financial crimes that I had just committed. And, um, they were like, did you do this? Did you take out these credit cards? And I said, yes. And, and they were actually really nice for being detectives. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were like, well, do you have, yeah, they really were. If you can believe that, um, in that, I think they recognized just talking to me. Yeah. How much of a addiction I had. Yeah. And, and I remember one of them saying, Hey, you know, here's my card, not just cause we're going to follow up with you and you're probably going to have charges filed on you. But he was um, actually offered like, Hey, if you need some help. And I was like, I don't need help. You know, the doctors are giving them to me. I, I could justify it all over the place. I do not believe I would have ever voluntarily sought help yeah. on my own. Um, but when fate and the state step in and you end up being arrested, going to jail, um, crushing off everything you've been taking in there, um, that, that was, that was, I'm ashamed to say that was the beginning of my recovery, Shannon. Yeah. And I'm ashamed to say that only because I know so many people that now that actually go, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't care what it's going to take. I'm going to, I'm going to get some help. And they voluntarily choose to do that. Not because a judge or a PO or a police officer are telling them they need to, they just honestly make that choice. And I am just, my hat is off to them. It really is. I know how much courage it takes, how much strength and grit they have to have to make that decision and follow through on it. And those type of people amaze me all the time. But right before I went to jail and prison, um, actually those detectives had just left my house and I'm shaking and I'm scared. I've never been in trouble before. So I'm, I'm quite sure that I'm going to go to jail and probably to prison. I'm in big trouble. And I just, I just, I went and took some more pills. I poured myself a drink because that makes the pills work better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I went and grabbed my gun, loaded it and sat on the floor in the, my bathroom for like an hour with that gun. And all I could think was my life is over. My life is over. That's it. My life is over because I am in big trouble and, and I need to, um, I, I can't do this. I, I, the only thing I knew of jails and prisons was what I'd seen on television. You know, yeah. I didn't, um, it, it seemed overwhelmingly scary and I was ashamed of myself and I was tired of the, energy it takes to try and keep that drug in your system just to not get sick. It is a lot of work. Everything in my life had come to the point where everything revolved around not getting sick. And so it was probably like, it was at least an hour, if not longer. And the only thing that stopped me was that I realized if I did that right then, right there, that my children might find me. They may come home from school and they may find that. And I didn't Mm -hmm. want them to find that. So I didn't really tell myself I wasn't going to do it. I just told myself I wasn't going to do it right then. And I went ahead and I put it away. 
and um, ended up getting arrested probably about a week later. And for multiple reasons, um, because of my drug overdoses from also from the fact that I I was suicidal and depressed. Um, I, I firmly believe that being arrested saved my life mm-hmm. for those, if no other reason, for those two reasons. So I'm, I'm still to this day very grateful for that. One of my favorite pictures is um, I have a picture now with the Meridian um, chief of police. And I had just shared my story during recovery month at their annual recovery breakfast recovery month breakfast. And, um, I, in my story, I talked about how Meridian's finest came and got me into recovery yeah. <laughs> and he came up to me after, after that. And he goes, well, I'm one of Meridian's finest. And I was like, well, thank you. And he goes, well, it wasn't me, but he goes, I'd sure like to look up the file and see who those officers were. And, you know, but we're, we're just really proud of how you're, you know, all the work you're doing now and, and very very happy that you're still here and able to offer hope to others. So it it was like, well, this is a very full circle moment, you know, (laughs) it really is. What were some of the things that you Mm -hmm. did um, in your recovery to help um, like counseling or group group therapy? What worked for you? A combination. Um, I definitely did a lot of group therapy. I went to 12 step meetings. Um, I had individual one-on-one counseling. I got involved with my church again. I, um, I did all of the above. I read every book I could possibly find because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to know what was wrong with me, you know? So um, I read every book I could on substance use disorder, on mental health and depression and um, just anything I could get my hands on. And honestly, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I took classes in prison, um, one of them probably that would had the most profound effect on me as far as something I learned. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know, right. Was, was cognitive self-change, which is a cognitive behavioral model. And it was life-changing, literally life-changing for me. It, um, it helped me drill down through my thoughts and identify risky thoughts. And then start looking for some common core beliefs that were driving those thoughts. And once I identified them, like take them out and examine them. Are they helpful? Are they logical? Are they true? You know, and if they're not, replace them with something else. That, as far as emotional regulation, um, making logical decisions and being less emotionally reactive and just trying to live my life, you know, based on how I feel at the moment. Um, I can honestly say that that class to this day, I still practice a lot of the things I learned in that class. And it got me super excited when I went back to college and decided I wanted to be a substance abuse counselor. Um, it got me really excited when I found out about smart recovery because mm-hmm. it was based on that cognitive behavioral model that built on the same principles. And, and I still facilitate smart recovery meetings. Now I take them back out to the prisons. Well, Pre-COVID, I did. I've not been in the prison since yeah. uh, lockdown this year, but I'm look. I'm really looking forward to going back out and taking that group back out there because hopefully it will help someone out there as much as it helped me. But my one-on-one counseling, friends in recovery, um, all I used any tool I could find 
that was available. And I didn't let anyone else tell me what would work or what wouldn't. Yeah, that's a big one. I actively sought them out. I think so. Because people always have opinions about their experience and then they don't think you had the same experience. Mm -hmm. And so they downplay it and it could, you could be missing out on something really helpful because you don't know how you'll react to it until you do it. Right. It's true. Even at church, it'd be like, you just need Jesus. Okay. Well I do, you know, but at the other, on the other side of that, I need, I need counseling too. And I need self-help and I need my groups and I, I, you know, I need to find what works for me. There is, and I know you believe this too, because you were part of the steering committee for Peer Wellness Center Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the concepts that it was built on. Um, Gosh, what was that? 2014, 2015. That was before I got assaulted. (laughs) That's why I disappeared. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But uh, that was yeah. an incredible experience being part of that steering committee. It was really, I, I still believe in the Peer Wellness Center so much. I haven't had a chance to go out there recently, but I, I need to, if it's open. Yeah, it is open. Um, masks are required, you know? Yeah, all that <laughs> but, kind of stuff. Absolutely. Like <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's I, built I, on I, the I, fact I, that... Um, is that segue? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to segue to that because you're the CEO of Recovery United, which operates seven recovery centers in Idaho. So I was hoping you could explain what those centers do and maybe what a recovery coach is. Because I think people associate that with AA. And it's not AA, it's different, but if you could explain it. Sure. Oh, so the recovery community centers um, are a positive, welcoming, non-judgmental place that, and offer peer-led recovery support services, which means they're non-clinical. There's no counselors and there, well, not that there's none, but that's not what we do. We don't do counseling. Um, we believe that people with lived experience, um, are the best are one of the best parts of your support system. Someone who's been there for you, you know, been where you've been, um, understands what you're going through and sometimes just sits with you. They don't try and solve your problems. They just go, you don't have to go through it alone. You know, um, we made sure that there wouldn't be any billable services or it doesn't matter um, if your benefits run out or you don't have insurance. Everything is free. And we also believe that there's just following SAMHSA, who is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, um, kind of our federal authority on all things behavioral health. um, They had sat down and and lined out what the core values of recovery are. And they were like, there's multiple pathways to recovery. Just like to touch on what you said, Shannon, just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And what works for you may not work for her or him. Mm -hmm. We're unique individuals with our own experiences, needs um, at our own place on our path in life. And it's ridiculous to think that only one person or there's only one way to be in recovery. And we further believe that you are an expert on what your recovery is. We don't tell you what your recovery is. Um, So it's been a new concept. And those are some of the key differences. It can include AA and AHA, and it should, 
but it does not um, exclude all of the other amazing things. And Mm -hmm. you might benefit from a group of small group of friends that do art things together once a week. You could, maybe you need an atheist agnostic support group. Maybe you like a faith-based one. Maybe you want to just do yoga and work on your spiritual health and your physical health. Um, Whatever it is, we try to make sure that we have a wide variety of support groups um, so that you can find what will work for you. We also give people the opportunity to volunteer and do community service. And we're always looking for social activities and um, things that we can do to be a positive part of our community. So like wake up Boise or whatever that is. So Mm -hmm. that's what the recovery community center is. I really wish that it would have been open when I had, when I first fell into recovery, I didn't fall. I went to a a mental hospital and that's when I decided (laughs) to stop drinking and there, and that's when I really learned. I knew what AA was, but I didn't really know what AA was. And I tried to, I tried to like look into Uh AA, but I'm not, I'm an atheist. So that kind of like threw me off and didn't connect with it, but I struggled hardcore trying to find a pathway for me um, before uh, something like a, a pure wellness center would have been amazing. Cause uh, just to be, walk into a facility and be like, here's my list of things that make me who I am. Can you help me? <laughs> right. I know. I, I, I say that myself a lot too. Um, if somebody, if everyone hadn't been trying to tell me what my recovery was going to look like, and I've had some, more options to explore. Mm-hmm. It, it would have been helpful. So the only thing we can do is like going forward, it's my goal in life, my passion, my purpose to make sure that those doors stay open <laughs> and that we're, we're, we're able to give that support, unconditional, positive, genuine, positive regard for every individual who walks through the doors and is looking for their path and the, and the things that are going to help support them. And there actually is an atheist agnostic um, AA group, but there's also things like smart recovery, which has no spiritual aspect to it. It's not that we don't believe in that your spiritual health isn't important. It's just that that's not part of that program. It's not the focus of it. Right. But people get stuck with spiritual health. Oh, that means I have to go to church. Uh, Not necessarily. Spiritual health could, can be so many. It's, it's, what do you find that nurtures your soul and your spirit? That's your spiritual health. And that's different for all of us. Yeah. You know? It seemed like a big ask though, for at the beginning to jump right into spirituality when I'm just, you know, when I, when I was really suffering, like I was, it was hard for me to to swallow that. And I get it now, yeah. but like me now, if I, you know, start drinking heavily again and I need help, then maybe I could look at that and it would be okay. Cause I wouldn't be in a, a, the same, the same desperate, you know, wanting to kill myself. That's why I ended up in the hospital because I wanted to kill myself and I almost Mm. did. His husband called and he uh, talked me out of it. He put my son on the phone and kind of similar to what you said, you know, I thought about my kids and I'm like, I can't do this. How horribly selfish would I be if I did this? And so I went to a hospital and that was, that was pretty Mm -hmm. cool too. I thought I was hot shit when I went in there though. Like I'm better than all these people because I have a business and (laughs) You know, and then like I'm in this group of people and this uh, lady who is addicted to heroin and she, I mean, she looked pretty worse. I think she was homeless also worn down. She, she starts talking about how when life kicks you in the, in the, in the gut, you got to just put one knee up and then put your fist up and then punch right back. And she starts just talking about all these things and she was so inspiring. And I felt like such an asshole for feeling better than her. 
when we were really, she was probably further along in her journey than I was in mine at that point. Um, but that's what groups do for me. Like, wow. Yeah. That, that big spectrum of experience, life experiences, it really humbles you. It really gives you perspective. Um, I think it's, I would advocate trying group therapy and sometimes it doesn't work. You might go to a group that you don't click with the people there and then just find another one. Cause that, that's, that's the thing too. Just like therapists, therapists are like finding a good therapist is like dating. <laughs> you gotta, you, gotta, you, gotta you have around. to find the right fit. <laughs> yeah. You gotta go there with your list you, do. you expect and, and, and make sure it works. It's true. And if it doesn't, no harm, no foul. I'm going to go try somewhere else. I think too, do you, I don't know if you see this, but I think people give up like, oh, I went to one AA meeting or I went to one church and I did not feel it. And I'm not going to do that ever again. And, and they're cheating themselves out of, of that. Or like I did counseling. Okay. With one counselor one time. Yeah, med management too. I get that. that Even on the you podcast. don't know all counselors now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Med management meds don't work. I tried them. Like if you tried one med and then you stop going, that's technically not trying med management. That's just trying one thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> the thing didn't work right. out. But yeah, I think a lot of that just comes from people being insecure about wanting to be in recovery, having to let go of of you know whatever it is they're addicted to. Oh my gosh, it's scary. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, it's very frightening to think, um, this has been a coping skill. It may not have been a healthy one, but our substance use, that was something we used to survive. That was something Mm -hmm. that helped us manage. It's just that Mm -hmm. at some point in our lives, some of us find out that it has more risk than benefit. And, and I think people underplay the fact that it also was helpful and and in yeah we can take the drug or the behavior away and i include alcohol as a drug you can take that away but if you don't replace it with something better how are you going to handle life yeah how are you going to to problem solve how are you are you going to just be white knuckling it and miserable and in pain all the time it's it that's not healthy either um and and ideally what i love about samsa's definition of recovery has nothing to do with self-harm has nothing to do with alcohol or heroin or cocaine or methane it doesn't even mention them because the way they defined recovery was that it's a process of change Mm-hmm. through which individuals strive to live a self-directed life and reach a, their definition of wellness. And I, I've misquoted the last few words on that, but that's the gist of it. It's like, what to you is your, what is quality of life for you? You wake yeah. up tomorrow and your life is really good. What does that look like? And, um, is it that I, I've, I've gotten some counseling and worked on some of those unresolved of traumas do i have my mental health um under control and i don't mean by under control but we're a place where i can live comfortably in my own skin yeah. right where i can function and and it very rarely does it ever turn out that the first treatment that you ever try is actually the one you're going to stick with for the rest of your life sometimes it takes a couple of attempts you know but we don't give up we just keep trying so um it's about, it needs to be self-directed. 
it's that's the most important thing. And I don't think people hear that often enough. I agree. It's one of the th- reasons I love peer support too, is it's, you know, you're, it's not bound by any like cr- religious or any, it's just a person in recovery talking to another person in recovery about what they need and what their goals are. And yeah. then when sharing my uh, struggles, I'm, I work in peer support and you're a recovery coach and do you do peer support also? Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. So I do not do peer support. I'm trained as a peer support specialist, but okay. and I got more out of that than I did the recovery coach training, but I do recovery coaching. Yeah. It's, it's just nice because it's the, I mean, it, from my perspective of my own recovery, trying to crash in through all the dogmas and different, you know, different hierarchies that it felt like it, they were telling me what to do. Um, and Samsha, the definition of recovery is more about me defining for myself what I need and then seek having somebody with me to help me get, fulfill that purpose as, as I need them to, as I, as if, if I need their support and advice, they're there to give it, or they're there just to talk to me to, cause I'm lonely and I'm, I'm really isolated and I need someone there so that I don't go back to using. I mean, there's uh, so many different um, aspects uh-huh. of, of peer, peer support and recovery um, coaching that, that I, I find so incredibly valuable. It's beautiful. It's um, actually, I felt, I told you I was in, in college. I was like 25 credits away from my degree. I am still 25 credits away from my degree. Same. When we opened Peer Wellness Center, the first one, I was like, I want to be a substance abuse counselor. And then I started seeing um, the power of peer-to-peer support. And I realized that there weren't enough of us peers and that there's plenty of counselors out there. There's a lot of them, a lot of different philosophies, personalities, locations. Um, but I, I, I walked as we built the recovery community and the recovery community centers. I realized this is what I'm supposed to be doing because I can do things that counselors can't do. And quite frankly, if I never finished my degree, or get certified as an alcohol and drug counselor, I, w- I am completely fine with that. Um, I love being a peer. I love being one of us. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the effect that not only that I get to help other people, but working with them helps me too. That's the whole peer-to-peer model, right? Um, is that someone who you might consider my quote-unquote client it's helping me in my recovery too. Absolutely. Every, almost every time we talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a very mutual experience. And as I, it's not top down. That's why it works. Absolutely. For me. Mm-hmm. I clearly have issues with and authority. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people do, cause you know, it's yeah. just part of what, you know, our, our genre here. <laughs> um, and it's just human nature to have problems with authority. Yeah. But imagine you just get, you know, somebody that's there for you that is just your cheerleader, your advocate, your, um, you know, resource connector, um, just there to tell you, hey, I know you can do it. I'm just here to help you. And that strengths-based approach that is just, mm-hmm. it's an evidence-based practice. And, and it's an honor to be able to do it, isn't it? To, it is to such work an with honor. other people on their journey. I loved, I love to go to work most every day. I'm, I'm happy that I get to go uh, walk with people in their recovery and see how I can contribute or, or what they have to say that might contribute to my own. Mm-hmm. 
So Monica, what advice would you have um, some, to someone who's just thinking about beginning their recovery? Do your homework and don't give up. There are like 26 million Americans living in recovery right now in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, it is possible. And I know that sometimes it feels like it's hopeless and it's scary and that it's something you can't do. And I would just tell you, yes, you can. And, and the second thing I would say is um, don't let anyone tell you what that looks like. Check out different options, check out different types of supports, be an informed consumer when it comes to your behavioral health services. And if the first one doesn't work out, that's okay. Try another one, but don't give up. And the third thing I would say is if you do fall down and and maybe have a slip or have a relapse or things are still, you know, not doing, that's okay. That doesn't mean you have to give up. I heard a story once of a gentleman who had, um, I didn't hear it. I read it in the newspaper. He had been to one of our uh, detox facilities 20 times and he's in his mid fifties. And some people uh, were making comments online on the news story, like, oh, my gosh, why they let him in so many times? You know, like, well, obviously, you know, he wasn't going to get it. But the story went on to say that that 21st time, that was the magic ticket. Something clicked at the right time, the right place when he was ready to receive it. And. From after that 21st time, he was now two and a half years in in recovery. He had a home where he had previously been homeless and he was doing really well. And and while they were making fun, like almost like not being very nice about the fact that he did 20 times. I was just like so happy (laughs) that he did it 20 times. Like, oh, my gosh, he never gave up. That's amazing. He never gave up. He went. Yes. If it takes 20 times, if it takes 10 times, if it takes five times, if it doesn't matter, we, we keep picking ourselves up and we keep trying. If you keep, just keep trying, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, don't give up. That's my advice. I think. That's awesome advice, Monica. Thank you very much. Well, do you have anything else to add? Good. I don't. I just, I, I so appreciate you letting me um, share my story. It's kind of one of those things that makes you feel kind of vulnerable, but it's also something that's helped me remember all the things that I'm incredibly grateful for and, and appreciate everything, all the opportunities I've been given and, and the work that, that you and I both get to do. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. Absolutely. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming on Sound Mind and I hope you can come back again sometime. Me too. We'll be listening. (laughs) Awesome. Well, you have a good evening. All right. You too.